This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. It's time once again for Evidence for Faith. Welcome, everyone. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. Evidence for Faith is an apologetics ministry, which means defending Christianity. We try to present the evidence for Christianity in an intellectually appealing way to help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. Check us out on evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can email us there. You can check up on upcoming speaking engagements, and you can listen to podcasts of previous shows. We've also got a group on Facebook, so if you're on Facebook, you can look up the group Evidence for Faith. If you'd like to call the show today, the number is 609-398-1020. Now, talking about upcoming Speaking engagements, Dr. Mike Larrakis and I will be doing a uh, speaking engagement this coming Saturday. It's going to be a Mother's Day breakfast. That's May 8th at 8 a.m., breakfast at 8 a.m., and at 9 o'clock we will be starting a recording of the show Evidence for Faith. So it'll be in front of a live audience, and we're going to be talking about the mother of us all, what scientists call mitochondrial Eve. So we'll talk about what science can tell us about Eve. And we're also going to be looking at the problem of why our kids leave the faith. Why are they leaving the church uh, in large numbers when they go away to college? So we'll be talking about that and we will be um, recording it for airplay and then that will be then played the next day, Sunday. So so Saturday, May 8th, you can come and join us. It's at First Baptist Church of uh, Egg Harbor City, and that is at 236 London Avenue, Egg Harbor City, New Jersey. Just to bring the point home about the concern about kids leaving the church when they go away, I've, I brought along a quote from a professor, a philosophy professor by the name of Richard Rorty, and it's... Uh, well, just see what you think. Let me just read this to you. He says, I, like most Americans who teach humanities or social science in college and universities, try to arrange things so that students who enter as bigoted, homophobic, religious fundamentalists will leave college with views more like our own. The fundamentalist parents of our fundamentalist students think that the entire American liberal establishment's engaged in a conspiracy. The parents have a point. We are going to go right on trying to discredit you in the eyes of your children, trying to strip your fundamentalist religious community of dignity, trying to make your views seem silly rather than discussable. We are not so inclusivist as to tolerate intolerance such as yours. I think those students are lucky to find themselves under the benevolent Herrschaft, which means domination, of people like me and to have escaped the grip of their frightening, vicious 
dangerous parents. Oh, my that, gosh. Yeah, that quote from Professor Richard Rorty. So those are the kinds of people that are teaching your kids when they go away to college. So we're no longer talking about education here. We're talking about political indoctrination. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so if you pay $50,000 a year to have your kids indoctrinated, yeah. isn't that nice? Yeah. So we are going to be talking about that uh, Mother's Day at the Mother's Day breakfast at First Baptist Church of Egg Harbor City. All right. Well, before we get into today's topic, Kirk, did you hear about this latest discovery? Uh, yes, I the did. The last three days or if, so. If you if you surf the internet at all, it was hard to miss it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently, Noah's Ark has been discovered. Again. <laughs> yeah, that's true. These, see, these things pop up every couple of years, and so it's hard to, um, you know, really put much stock into it. Uh, the the latest one, I think, back in late 80s uh, was this um, kind of biblical explorer guy who's found just about everything else, supposedly, and he claimed also to find Noah's Ark. And uh, I, I didn't – that one didn't come over very well. I didn't really buy that one. It looks like it's a geological formation. Um, but anyways, this seems to be – this I was very impressed with, actually, when I first saw – the photographs, and they've actually got video coming out. Did you get to see the video clip? No, I, I saw the photographs. I didn't see video yet. Okay, yeah. They, if you go to the website of the um, the Chinese explorers who who did the press release a few days back uh, that released the the pictures, they have a video clip there of them actually climbing down in through the ice crevasse and getting inside this wooden structure. Oh. So uh, very impressive. I mean, they're running around knocking on things that look like rock, and you knock on it, and and it's wood. I mean, it's you know, it's like yeah. knocking on a table. <laughs> so um, uh, it it really is very impressive, and the rooms are huge too. Yeah, I think there there's seven rooms. Most of them are small. Uh, one of them though is thirty feet by nine feet, and they showed the video of of that room. So. Uh, hmm. Yeah, it's very impressive. They also claim that they have carbon dating uh, back to 4,800 years old. So that Mm -hmm. would kind of fit along with uh, the storyline. Right. So um, very interesting. Also, they claim that one of the the, uh, Turkish guides was a geologist and one was an archaeologist from universities in Turkey. So lending a little bit of academic credence to it, too. But then the problem comes, and this is why you have to be careful. Anytime you hear some new argument, if it sounds convincing, if if you're not just uh, put off by it right away, but if it sounds somewhat convincing, it's always a good idea to search for someone opposing it and see what they have to say. It's kind of like being on a, a jury and... You know, you hear the prosecution, usually prosecution goes first, so you hear the prosecution give his case, and you know what? Sounds believable. Mm-hmm. Well, if you voted right then, guess what? Just about everybody gets hung, right? Right. So, but you have to wait. You have to wait. You have to hear the other side. So, 
I always find that it helps to listen to both sides of an argument before you really try to decide which side you're going to come down on because you never know. You know, the the first one may convince you, but then the second one, the second position may come along and you'll be like, oh, okay, well, I guess I changed my mind. Exactly, exactly. And that's it. In fact, it's even, there's a Bible verse, I should have looked it up, that discusses that. So you do have to look at the other side. So searching, doing some web search, um, found uh, that there is a climber who was apparently part of an early earlier expedition, and he's claiming that it's a hoax. And he says he has contacts in the small village that's at the base of the mountain that where most of the uh, exploration starts from, and uh, he says that he knows. because he knows the person and he knows what truck was used to haul the wood up into the mountains. Hmm. So the, those claims are going to have to be checked up. I mean, you know, actually looking at the photographs and looking at the video, if this is a hoax, it is extremely elaborate because uh, there's a lot of wood up there. And we're talking the 13,000 foot level, hmm. uh, you know, f- well above the permanent snow line. Right, uh, it, and the photos. It does appear that it's buried under uh, uh, lava rocks. It does appear that it's buried under the ice. Um, so, if this is fake, they really did a good job. I mean, you know, yeah. this is almost as good. As, if this is a hoax, this is about as good as the global warming hoax. Yeah. So, uh, so I, well, the, I guess they'll both be vying for the hoax of the century. Today is the day of easy hoaxes, though. When you think about how easily you can Photoshop a photograph today to make it look like something totally different, or some of the movies and the special effects in them look so real, incredibly real, but they're not. It's it's really getting harder and harder all the time to tell what is true and what isn't. But it makes all the more important for a show like this where people can listen to it and get the other side. Right. So you can... and, and. for guys like you and me who spend a lot of our time actually going over the evidence and reviewing it and looking back at the primary sources and finding out uh, are things being presented in the right way? Is this really true? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people just don't have time. I mean, you know, some of the things like we're going to be talking about evolution again today, and people just don't have time to spend a lot of time going over the evidence. And I have to admit myself, for years, I was convinced that the evolutionary argument made a lot of sense. Yeah. But that was because I never heard the other side of it until years later. Right. And when I started to hear the other side of it, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe this isn't so credible after all. Well, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. And you can call us at 609-398-1020, and we do have a caller on the line, so go ahead, caller. Well, uh, what makes the the Noah story and the flood story uh, very questionable, uh, there's a lot of details about the that story that uh, you, you would have to figure in if you look at the uh, life today as we know it. For an example, um, after the flood was over, let's say all the uh, Noah let all the animals out on dry land. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't forget, after the flood, a number of the animals were carnivorous, meaning they ate other animals. So if you only had two by two went in and two by two going out, 
uh, if the carnivorous animals ate those who were not carnivorous, uh, how would we today have, uh, for example, horses, cows, dogs, cats, and so forth that normally eat grass? Uh, how, how would those creatures would have survived the uh, ark? That's an interesting question. Uh, you're you're saying that how did all the uh, all the carnivores that came off the ark probably ate all the non-carnivores? Right. That's right. And okay, Keith, how do you handle that one? <laughs> well, for one thing, don't forget that they were on board the ark uh, already for I believe almost a year, so uh, uh, they obviously were not eating each other then. If this, you know, um, there's been many examples of animals such as lions and tigers actually being herbivores. So while it may be normal that most tigers, most lions, as an example of carnivores, eat only meat, uh, in actuality they survive quite well eating uh, cereal, uh, eating grains, um, eating vegetables. So, And there have been uh, examples of this published. So, so it's actually... As far as health-wise, there's no reason why they had to eat meat. Um, so remember also that, uh, you know, this is God protecting the animals through the flood and actually brought all the animals to Noah himself. Noah didn't have to go and gather them. So, right. so God was actually God exerted some kind of force over them to bring them to the ark to begin with. So Correct. why wouldn't he tell them not to eat the little ones? Right. right. Kind of inhibit their uh, instincts mm -hmm. at you know when they first came out of the ark so that they wouldn't eat each other and make everything he just done, you know, right. Does nullified. that does that help a little bit? Yeah, I I'll, I'll give you that uh, that point of view. But now here's another one I throw mm -hmm. at you. Uh, after the flood, uh, Noah, don't forget uh, lived at a time in which there was very little transportation. I don't even think sails were created up, up until the uh, Roman Empire or the Greek, the Greek Empire was the first time even sails were created. So that presents a, a question, too. How did Noah get faraway animals such as the uh, polar bear, which only lives at the North Pole, the koala bear, the duckbill platypus, and other animals that only live in Australia? How was Noah able to transport a furnished transportation all the way back thousands of miles from where the ark was. The ark landed somewhere in what is now modern-day Turkey, I think, right. in the Middle East. How was he able to transport these animals those far away distances along with their food and drop them off there and then come all the way back to the, uh, uh, the Middle East again? How would you answer that one? Okay, well, uh, there, he didn't deliver any animals anywhere. Um, the animals were released from the ark, and they they scattered. Now, um, seeds and uh, plants wouldn't have had any problem regrowing. You would have had plants growing all over the earth uh, immediately. So, so food for the animals wouldn't have been a problem. Um, the interesting thing is that I don't know if you're aware of how they've been mapping out the DNA of human beings. Uh, National Geographic has been sponsoring a lot of this research, and they're showing how human beings spread from the, uh, if you look at the data, it actually shows the Middle East, the starting point, and then spreading across the earth. Are, are you familiar with that at all? 
Um, n- n- not really. Okay. Well, they've been they they've uh, tracked how human beings came out of the Middle East and spread across the Earth, but they've also now begun to do that with animals. Uh, they just finished the uh, dog, and they found that all dogs across the entire Earth are related to the Middle Eastern wolf. So the Middle Eastern wolf is the prototype animal. And then they evolved and adapted as they spread across the Earth uh, into different species that are across the Earth. And then human beings found them useful and started using that uh, microevolution, that adaptation ability of animals to create all of the breeds that you see today. So, so there's some exciting uh, scientific information coming out about that that really fits in with the, the Noah story. I, you know, obviously but We also have to remember that there weren't polar ice caps before the flood either because the entire climate of the Earth changed before and after. So when you're talking about, for instance, polar bears in the Arctic, number one, there wasn't an Arctic as we know it back then until well after the flood after. when the ice age started exactly and there may not have been polar bears at that point there may have been some generic bear, bear species exactly. that eventually found his way to what we now call the arctic and and adapted adapted it by had, with the white coat at right, a later had, point that's right it had the genetic information for both white and brown and black colors right. and the white ones survived and the brown ones didn't in the cold climate Right. There may have been only a genetic, a generic bear species on board the Ark that ended up being the uh, relative for all the rest that came after. All right, caller. I hope that helps. In the interest of time, we're going to have to move on to uh, Thank you. another time. You bet. So, um, so we'll just have to see. You know, there will be more evidence coming out, and we'll just see. It's either a hoax or uh, it's one of the greatest uh, archaeological finds of all time. There's a news item uh, maybe before we get into our topic. Uh, this is really interesting because we have talked in the past about uh, global warming, environmentalism, and the Christian view of care for the earth. And I, I found this article just too uh, good to, to uh, not bring up on the show. It was published in The Guardian, uh, which is a Canadian newspaper, and it's a left-leaning uh, newspaper, too. So, th- so this is Aren't not— most of them? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Most of them are, and this one is, too. Um, it's about an article that was published by some scientists in the journal Psychological Science. Now, this also, you know, left-leaning, um, did not expect the results that they got. Here's the interesting results. They took— people who, what they called green consumers, or what we might call, you know, tree hugger environmentalists. <laughs> and and these were people that bought products based on their uh, impact on the environment, people that drove cars that uh, were green, and mm-hmm. people that recycled. So you, they, they grouped those or people. Or don't drive cars at all, but ride bicycles. Well, they transportation was one of the categories how they judged these people and then they right. compared them to people who did not do those things right so you have two groups and now they and they're going to compare them now their their thesis was that because these people are so concerned about the environment that they might have better morals than the other people might be more virtuous and have better character so they developed some tests for them that would test them based on kindness based on whether or not they would steal and whether or not they would lie. So they put them into situations where they thought they were not being monitored, they thought that they were um, anonymous, 
and they were actually being monitored. And it turns out that the environmental, the environmentalists were less kind, were more likely to lie if they could, and were even the biggest one was stealing. They were six times more likely to steal than the non-environmentalists. <laughs> so that I thought I just you know, this is just too precious. I couldn't, I'm surprised uh, they reported that, especially yeah, when they didn't against, expect to find those results. That's right. It was, again, the, exactly the opposite of what Usually they Usually those stories end up in the trash can. <laughs> yes, yes, a lot of times. So um, so just something, I guess I just, I, I guess I'm just... Uh, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello, my friendly environmentalist friends. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to be talking about evolution and oh i had a quotation my computer just decided to go into sleep mode <laughs> well we're going to talk about the i do that sometimes too <laughs> yeah i was uh yeah i was going into sleep mode a lot today too uh the uh we're going to continue the discussion that you and dr mike were having about the uh revolution in evolution mm-hmm. which um there's so much exciting new information coming out that it really can be called a revolution. In fact, I just want to start with a quote that will really uh, bring across this whole idea because this quote is by Anthony Flew. Do you know who Anthony Flew is? No, I don't. Anthony Flew was, well, he's still alive, so he still is, uh, except he's just not an atheist anymore. He was the leading atheist of the 20th century. He wrote more books on atheism. He was an avid debater. He would debate theists anytime, anywhere. Uh, A true academic, um, but he was also truly open-minded. He would follow the evidence anywhere, and he has... I think I have heard about him. I didn't recognize the name, but I remember reading about this this guy that went through this transformation you're talking about. That's right, and he has become a theist, and here's what he has to say about science today. He says, I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence and that this universe's intricate laws manifest what scientists have called the mind of God. I believe that life and reproduction originate in a divine source. Why do I believe this, given that I expounded and defended atheism for more than a half century? The short answer is this. This is the world picture, as I see it, that has emerged from modern science. Wow. There you have from Anthony Flew, and that is the revolution in evolution that we are talking about today. In other words, the evidence convinced him, which is what this show is all about. Exactly right. That's This is the kind of stuff that we talk about on Evidence for Faith, which I guess we should say that if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. And you can call us at 609-398-1020. I am the guest host for the, the week. Mike, I assume, will be back next week. Yeah, but you know what? You've been like guest hosting so regularly <laughs> Yeah, I think feel I'm almost like, a regular guest exactly, host. Exactly. I feel like I'm the guest host today. <laughs> so, but anyways, and we do appreciate you being here. Well, let's uh, let's talk about how the debate is framed by the other side. How do the evolutionists frame the debate of Christianity versus or religion versus science? 
People that believe in God are nuts. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. <laughs> that's about as basic as you can put it. <laughs> they 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 make it look like it's the Bible versus science. Yes. Right? That's it's two or religion versus science or you know, yes. you can state it in a couple of different ways, but that's basically it. That's right. And and this is continuing on from what you and Mike talked about last week, how science is seen as this objective process that derives facts from a reliable observations and how they're independent of any kind of prejudice. You know, they don't put their own views forward. They just go with the flow and this is what creates uh, rocket ships that go, can go to the moon, and this is what gives us advanced computers and, and all this, and this is science. See, that's that's science. That's the side they're on. Mm-hmm. But on the other side is this reliance on the Bible that's promoted by these blind, unthinking, uh, uncritical, uh, you know, people of faith uh, who never change their views, who who always ignore the evidence. So that's how they view what the issues of today are in science. That's how mm-hmm. they pose the question. So You could also say faith versus science or religion versus science or God versus science, but the point is that they see these as two opposites. Right. That there's no there's nothing they're, they're in between. Fighting. Yeah, You're either fighting on the one other. side or the other side. Exactly right. Now based on that definition, um, guess what? If the debate is based on that definition, then it guarantees that science will win. Sure. If science is reason, then how can that lose lose the argument? Right. That's right. And it, it also allows them then to uh, in um, in philosophy is called poisoning the well. They then are allowed to poison the well of anyone who comes up with contrary evidence mm-hmm. because they can then say that this evidence that's being presented by Bible believers, it's prejudiced, you see. So we ought not to listen to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's don't pay any attention to the man behind the, the screen, right? Yeah, that's a line from a famous movie somewhere, isn't it? <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, don't pay any attention to this guy. The he's... one with the Tin Man and the Lion and the the other guys. That's right. Yeah, he's just a uh, he's just a Bible believer. So right. don't don't listen to to anything <laughs> he has to say. And as we said earlier, most people don't have the time or the ability to check out the evidence for themselves. Right. So they're subject to this philosophical trick called poisoning the well. Right. So if I poison the well, nobody's going to drink from it. Right? The well is right. poisoned. Don't drink from this well. It, it's You can't trust these people. It's like even if you're out in the desert and somebody hands you a glass of what looks like water, but you think it's poison, you're not going to drink it. And you might die, but it might really be water, and, you right. know, what did you die for? Nothing. Exactly right. Only because, because you, you were trusted. Told. Yes, because you trusted somebody that told you, well, that's poison, don't drink it. Right, exactly. So this allows, this strategy then, um, it really takes the intellectual high ground. I mean, the, the evolutionists have taken the intellectual high ground. They mm-hmm. are standing on the hill, uh, looking down on everybody else. Um, it unites them. See, they get united under this banner of science. And reason. 
Exactly right. I hate it when they say all the time, we're the reasonable ones and you people are crazy. <laughs> That's right. And, and it divides the believers. Yep. It, it divides the Christians into their different camps. So because some of the evidence that's presented is true, and of course it sounds very true, and we do want to be objective. We do want to examine the evidence. So we get divided um, by this issue of faith versus science, and uh, it's unfortunate. What we need to do is figure out a way for Christians and believers, theists, to unite Mm -hmm. and create a way to divide the opposition. So, So let's talk about that a little bit. How do we, what can we unite under uh, as believers, right? We can unite under uh, central issues, okay? okay? Like the major central issue that God created the universe, okay? If we can unite under that, then we have uh, Catholics, we have Protestants, we have uh, Jews, uh, even actually technically Muslims. Sure. Um, they can. They all, believe God created the universe too. Exactly right. So they can all unite. We can all unite and begin to defend that position. Mm-hmm. So, but we also. It's not enough just to uh, unite ourselves. That might be helpful. Uh, so we should focus on uh, the evidence that God created the universe. God created life. That should be a major focus, and it has been a major focus of this show. But we should really, I think that's the intelligent design movement is trying to do that to some extent, isn't it? It's trying to unite people under the idea that there must be an intelligence behind the universe rather than this unintelligent randomness that is being pushed today. Exactly right. Exactly right. So that's why we spend a lot of time focusing on intelligent design and what it is. Mm-hmm. So, but how do we divide the opposition then isn't really science. The opposition is not science. We're trying to present science. The opposition is materialism. Okay. So, so we're opposed to the materialist. The materialist is the person who says that only matter exists. Okay. So only matter and energy exist. There is nothing spiritual. There is no God. There are no spirits. You don't have a soul. You are just your brain. Right. Those are, and we've talked about that a few times in the past, those are the actual uh, enemy, if you want to call them an enemy. Mm-hmm. And that is a philosophical position, not a scientific position. Yes. Because they can't prove that. That's right, and that's how to divide them. Right. is to point out the fact that that is a philosophical paradigm. It is a prejudice. It's a bias. Right. And that alone right there will affect the work that you do. It's a starting point that you will not question under, under any circumstances, no right. matter whether the evidence goes against it or not. So what we wind up having then is two definitions of science. And... Uh, they're not compatible. They don't. They're not side by side. They actually, no. they actually conflict against each other, uh, and that's what we need to point out. So in our culture, there's there's really two definitions of science. So the first 
is this view science is based on an impartial, factual, repeatable observations. It's fa- Yeah, Mike and I talked a little That's about right. this last week. Yes, you did. About the definition of science. That's right. So it's fair. It's supposed to be open to free deliberation of all ideas. Ha, ha, ha. I'd like to see that someday. It's repeatable. You can... Um, it's experiments. Trust- yeah, it's trustworthy. It. It's the kind right. of thing that makes um, cars get better gas mileage today. Right. You know, uh, it's the kind of thing that allows us to communicate around the world instantaneously. It it's, builds better computers. Yes, it puts satellites into orbit. Right. So, that's the trustworthy part, and and a big part of that is following the evidence wherever it leads just like Anthony Flew did, who left materialism and mm-hmm. became a theist. So um, so this needs to be free of any kind of political involvement. We don't want a political authority over it, but right. we also don't want religious authority. You know, we don't want this to be kind of supervised by the church. Right. Right. Like, for instance, if the Pope said it, that's it, we don't question it. Exactly, yeah. Type of thing. I'm not picking on the Pope, but you could insert any religious leader in there. Exactly right. So no no biases. It has to be open, open-minded. So then, but then, there's, a, there's an opposite view, a different definition of science. And that's what we're really seeing today and, and what this show fights against. Right. And that's that this view that science is devoted objectively or, or devoted initially to a specific prejudice, to a specific viewpoint, materialism. Right. That its science is basically dedicated to materialism, that they have to start with particles in motion, with laws of physics and that you can only appeal to forces like chance and law-driven behavior, those kinds of things. You, you, you know, it's essentially chance has to play this, uh, like a role of a substitute designer, mm-hmm. okay? That's the definition of science that is illegitimate because it already starts out with its conclusion of materialism. You start with the assumption that everything in the universe is matter and energy, and then you go from there. Right. Exactly right. But, now the thing but, but prove that everything is just matter and energy in the universe. Well, in Oh, well, we assume that. The, exactly. Yeah, but prove it. Well, I can't. <laughs> that's right. In fact, we've even shown evidence on this show that uh, of things that exist that are not matter and energy. Right. But like your thoughts, for instance. Like your thoughts, for you instance. You can't dissect somebody's brain and find their feelings and, you know, what they were thinking this morning in there. That's it's right. Just, it's not there. Yes, that's right. Or software. There's right. another good example, software. Yeah. Software is not physical. I, I still haven't figured that out. I, I don't know how my computer does what it does. <laughs> <laughs> when well, I was a kid, I couldn't figure out how a record plays. How, how can you put a piece of plastic on a, rec, on a record player uh-huh. and put a little needle on it and get all that music and sound out of it? I still haven't figured that one out. You still and CDs, it forget it. <laughs> CDs are even worse. How do you get all this music out of a flat little piece of plastic? Yeah, you know, when for kids, I mean, I mean, some of the stuff made sense when we were kids, but for kids today, it must really be a magical world. Yeah, you know, 
You just push buttons, food gets hot. And they, they take There's a no lot fire. of things for granted. I don't think yeah. a lot of kids even think about, well, how does this work or how does this do this? They just enjoy it and, you know, that's yeah. it. it. That's just the way things are. Yeah. And I guess for, uh, you know, a lot of prehistoric cultures um, that were stuck in magic and, you know, uh, spiritism, that's just the way things worked too. There were spirits in the rocks and spirits yep. in the trees. And, uh, but isn't it kind of magic when you can put a little plastic disc in a DVD player and get a full-color, technicolor, stereophonic movie out of it? Well, we, well, we don't want our um, scientific listeners to kind of, you know. I'm just kidding, to, yeah. audience. <laughs> it's not go. magic. It's scientifically explainable. Exactly. I just don't understand it. <laughs> there you go. So now if, with this, given this definition of science, though, uh, if this definition of science, this materialistic view of science, right, then evolution must be true. Sure. By There's definition. no other way to go. Exactly right. Exactly right. Now, you know, if, if uh, you know, so you ask the question, then, can non-living things, non-living molecules combine to form life? Right. What would be the answer according to this? According to the science that I understand, that's impossible. Okay. We're talking about spontaneous generation, which was disproved long ago. But not according to this view of science. Science as materialism, of course, that's where life came about. Where else would life come about from? Then that's not traditional science. No, it's not traditional science. And that's where we have to uh, point our forces uh, the most. Because it's just taken for granted. The fact that you are alive right now proves that you came about by a materialistic, uh, non-theistic process. So there has to be, if it's not Darwinian evolution, this, these scientists will say, these materialists, then right. it was something very much like it. That's what they'll say. Right. What if you say, well, God did it? No, God didn't do it. That's religion. See, you're, you're a religious you're, nut then. You're outside the realm of science. Right. Because they have they've predefined science as materialism. So this second view of science trumps the former view, no matter what. It's funny how some scientists will say that science cannot deal with the idea of God. Therefore, that's why we don't pay any attention to it. But on the other hand, they're saying science has proven that there is no God. Yeah. Which those are not, they're not both the same thing. You know, I don't mind it when they say, well, you know, I'm a scientist. I can't deal with the idea of God because right. my science is not made to deal with that kind of a subject. Right. That's fine. And to some extent, I agree with that. It's the people who say, because I can't deal with it, he can't possibly exist. Exactly right. That's who I have a problem with. That's right. And that's the kind of uh, atheist that uh, um, you run into all the time that write lots of books. Sure. Yeah. Richard Dawkins, right up there. Exactly. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. And you can call and join the conversation, 609-398-1020. So what we need is a strategy where we can divide these two definitions, where we can really make it clear to people um, the difference between the two. Right. So 
what happens if it turns out that the evidence tends to lead actually in one direction due to the data that there is actually an intelligent designer? What happens if the evidence shows that, that things are, it looks like there really was an intelligent designer? Materialism leads in an opposite direction. So it's saying that it, materialism then can be shown as just merely a philosophical commitment. It's a, it's an ideology. It's a, it's a paradigm. It's a bias. Right. So our goal. Our, really, our modern media has a lot to do with this too. The the media, for the most part, trumpets this idea of Darwinism and evolution and. You know, God, science says that God doesn't exist at all, which is why I think a lot of people think that. Yes. If the New York Times were to come out tomorrow with a headline, God is proven real, then a lot of people, I think, would automatically believe that. They wouldn't even necessarily read the article. Just because the headline of the New York Times says that, yes. it must be true, and they would turn 180 degrees around and believe it. I agree with you. I think that's probably true. And yeah. that's based on that's based Unfortunately. on Unfortunately. You know, that's belief based on authority. Right. So if the paper, if the newspapers, the media is saying it, if uh, you know, scientists are saying it. If it's in print, it, it must be true. A lot right. of people still think that. And unfortunately for many years I thought that too, until I came to the realization, no, that's not necessarily the case. Right. Right. So we've got to pre if if we can present the evidence that supports um, intelligent design, then we can divide the materialists. Mm -hmm. And that without appear, appealing to the Bible. We don't have to appeal to the Bible. We can appeal directly to the evidence that we're finding sure. under the electron scanning microscope, the evidence that we're finding that the universe is fine-tuned with our space-based telescopes, uh, all of these things will divide the scientific camp into those who are dedicated to science as truth versus those who have a prejudice of materialism or atheism. Right. So, so, so how do we get that on the front page of the New York Times? <laughs> well, talking about presenting the evidence, so, and recognizing, you know, letting people understand that it is a legitimate issue to question scientists if materialism, if they're not really reading in to their work, are they reading into their evidence the materialist viewpoint that they have? So, so that's, that's this revolution, that's the new revolution in evolution. It's changing the way things are talked about, changing the way the uh, the whole argument is discussed. Yeah. yeah. The way it's framed. So no yeah. longer is it the Bible versus science. It is the evidence. Are you looking at it from a materialistic viewpoint, from a biased viewpoint? Are you looking at it open-minded, open-mindedly? Right. So, so, so what we really need, you know, and what we... The best thing that can happen is for more and more people to understand the issue, to understand intelligent design, to understand the argument is really about 
what is influencing science? Right. Is it being influenced by materialism, by atheism, or is it truly an objective viewpoint? Right. So, you know, and, and, and you know, it, the mainstream media is very important to this, just as you said. Yeah. Well, you're so, basically describing the search that I went through in my life that read to, led to the writing of my book, you know, called What is Truth? I spent years listening to what the media was telling me right. and just accepting it mm-hmm. and thinking, well, that sounds good. That makes sense. Yeah. But yeah. then some questions started to creep in that they weren't answering, and I'm like, okay, where do I find the answers to these? Yeah, you don't find that in the media. See, that? No. That's, that's one of our big problems is that the media wants to go back to the old paradigm. It wants to make everything the Bible versus science. Yes. It, and because they know how to win that kind of argument. Right. They Exactly. Can, by framing it in that way, they know they win. Right. So if it's Bible versus science rather than two different definitions of science, then they can win that argument. So so one of the things you'll notice is that the media really does not want to talk about intelligent design. They'll talk about it and call it creationism, but they won't talk They'll about— They'll say it's creationism in, in disguise. That's what they like to say. Yeah, exactly. Those sneaky creationists, they're just calling it something else so they can slip it in there on us. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So, so, um, and 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 if they do that, they don't have to explain it. Right. They don't have to explain what it is. They'll they'll call it. The other thing is they'll call it junk science. Yep. Right. Yep. Well, do they explain how it's junk science or why? Or it's why? Junk? Yeah. Yep. That's that's a good question. No, they don't. We should be asking them that. Well, why do you call this junk science? Because and and they don't want to discuss the evidence. No, they don't. Because because they know how to win the old argument. So um, so what they do so that's one thing they do is frame the argument the way they want to, but then they also go after those who are devoted to intelligent design. Those who do show the evidence. Those people they go after. Those people they lie about. Those people they smear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's where you get um, that uh, documentary. Uh, the name of it is escaping me now, where they showed a lot of the academics who have lost their jobs, lost their positions because of investigating the evidence for intelligent design. Right, right. So, you know, people get scared and, um, you know, they don't want to uh, present this kind of evidence. Or rock the boat. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, you're ostracized if you try to rock the boat. So we so we need to teach this evidence. We need to teach it so that the environment becomes more friendly for those scientists to become willing to speak out on issues of intelligent design. Right. So and we also believe it or not, you know, the media wants people to think that intelligent design people are anti uh, teaching about evolution that they want to stop evolution from being taught in the schools. And that's actually not true. Uh, Intelligent design people want evidence to be presented for evolution because the evidence is so weak that when you compare it side by side to intelligent design, intelligent design will win every time. And I really think that's why the evolutionists are so um, ferocious about not allowing intelligent design to be taught in our schools. Because I really think 
They're insecure, they, and they're afraid that if both of these are taught side by side, everybody's going to see that our our argument is the weaker one. Right. So uh, we actually want to teach more about evolution than the evolutionists want taught. I, I don't know if you know, Kirk, that a few uh, years back there was a study done to see there was a, a test given on evolution to a large number of high school kids to find out what they knew about evolution. And then at the bottom of the test, was they were asked if they believed in evolution or not. So what they wanted to do was figure out what information about evolution led to kids being more likely to believe evolution. Right. Do you see the the methodology here? It right. makes perfect sense. So they're, they're trying to address this uh, conflict in our society that evolutionists are very frustrated with the fact that that most children are taught evolution all through school, and yet many of them come out not believing in it, and they want to know why. Right? Why don't you believe in this? We've I, given you all this this information. That, why don't you accept it? That's right. Well, it turns out this study showed that the children who got higher scores on the evolution test actually were much less likely to believe in evolution. Wow. So how the, about that? The children that were more knowledgeable about how evolution works, that they were actually less likely to believe it. Now, that doesn't surprise me, but I'll bet that surprises a lot of scientists. After that study came out, that is when you started seeing this very heavy evidence on evolution is a fact. Right. Because they realized that education didn't help their cause. So teaching evolution doesn't help. You've got to indoctrinate. You have to claim that evolution is a fact, and then people will believe it. You have to ram it down their throat. (laughs) Exactly right. Yeah. So we actually want children to be taught evolution. We want them to learn it so that they also will be less likely to believe it because it's simply unbelievable when you learn all the facts of how evolution is supposed to have created the vast array of incredibly complex creatures on the earth. And especially, it seems like the more you learn about microbiology today, the more you would tend to lean away from evolution. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've found out so much in that area that we didn't know even 10 or 20 years ago. And it's just amazing the complexity that is there that we never dreamed was there. Right. And Darwin or any of the 19th century evolutionists could ever hope to have imagined. They had no concept of what was there. Right. So by focusing on intelligent design, we're going to be able to unite the believers, we don't have to fight over old earth versus young. You know, for instance, um, uh, you know, how important is it for this um, Noah's Ark thing? You know, we're probably never going to get past any kind of impasse because even if there is a huge wooden structure on top of uh, Mount Ararat, indicating some kind of a young earth that the scenario of of Genesis is true, people will just say, well, it's just a building, you know, it's... They would always find another explanation for it. Exactly right. Right. So, so, so it's a, it's a, the young earth versus old earth battle is really a a losing battle. Uh, I think it's maybe... And that's something I don't think you can really scientifically prove either way either. 
Well, whether you can or not, you if you could, it would require a it's tremendous – exactly. A tremendous amount of evidence because the amount of evidence on both sides is legion. I mean, yeah. it's just massive. And you've looked through right. the evidence yourself in preparing your book. So, so you know that um, you can just – spend decades studying the yep. evidence pro and con and yep. and I've wavered back and forth because the evidence is really strong on both sides. Yep. But so so while Christians are fighting each other over young versus old um you know we're losing the main battle over God created. Let's decide first whether God created it all or not and then we can worry about how old it is. Exactly right. All right. Well, we only have a few minutes left okay maybe like three minutes left I've got a couple of news items that I thought I would share and let me just pull up for those that are just joining us you are listening to evidence for faith I'm Keith Kendricks I'm Kirk Hastings and we've been discussing the revolution in evolution I want to tell you about a, a study. This was a this came out a couple of weeks ago. I've been saving it. Kirk, see what you think about this. Adults who frequently attended religious service as adolescents and grew up living with both biological parents were least likely ever to be divorced or separated. Did you hear this study? Yeah, I've heard similar studies. Came out a couple of weeks yeah. ago. The actual I think percentage, there's more than one study that indicates that. Yeah, this is yeah, this is multiple. Yeah. But it just shows that the Christian worldview of intact families and mm-hmm. attending church, studying your Bible actually does work benefits on people. Oh and yeah. One of them is this. So the percentage of adults was only 17%. If you were raised in an intact home and you attend church more than once per month, the, your divorce rate is only 17% hmm. versus those who were raised in, a, in a, a broken home and attended church services less than once a month, 27%. Hmm. So now, you know, you hear this 50% of marriages break up, but a lot of that is multiple people who've been divorced multiple times. Right. If you ask a hundred people, how like how have you ever been divorced before? The divorce rate is twenty-seven percent. Okay. Okay. So, um, so, but it's only seventeen percent if you were brought up in a intact home and attend church services. I've heard similar studies recently, too, that say that such people that go to church and come from intact families are healthier and live longer, too. Yes, yeah, we've we've cased, we've uh, showcased some of those studies right here on Evidence for Faith. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks and author Kirk Hastings. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. For more reasons to believe, and always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. But they keep on the electric, what a ghost town. He knelt down, don't know how. He opens his mouth, just a word, help comes out.